We're going to continue our, our look at Acts today. Um, and we'll go through Acts 3 today. So if you'll open your Bibles to Acts 3, I'll read the entire chapter. And, uh, and then we'll just uh, survey what's here. Let me, get, let me begin in prayer this morning. Our Holy Father, we do thank you for just a beautiful morning and uh, the privilege that we have on this Lord's Day to gather together to worship you in song, in prayer, in giving, and in proclaiming, Lord, uh, the whole counsel of your word. And as we look this morning, Lord, at... Uh, we have through Christ Jesus, your Son, our Savior, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, can you hear me? We good? All right, Acts 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate on the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. 
Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Acts 3. Well, as we've been studying, we see and know that the Holy Spirit uh, falls upon God's people in in a wonderful, mighty, and powerful way um, through Peter's life-transforming sermon. I mean, this this guy preaches the Word of God, and 3,000 people get saved, adding to the church of 120. And he provides um, a lucid understanding of the promises of Scripture. That is what we know um, is the Old Testament. Now, if we think about this, it may have been um, tempting if if we were one of these folks saved. um, Whether we are part of the 120 or part of the 3,000, it would be tempting to kind of linger in or... Enjoy the the exclusive club of uh, Pentecost revival, if you will. With now a membership of 3,120, on the surface it might have been tempting for some to enjoy membership, comfort, security, and forget about the world outside. Kind of like a little holy club. You know, enjoying the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, as we looked at last time, brought about by the work of God, the Holy Spirit. You know, I I know people, and maybe you do, they've lived their entire Christian's lives with a kind of, you know, self-sacrificed, satisfied, and I say self-sacrificed, and they think that just going to church is is a sacrifice that sanctifies that alone. And outside of that, um, they have no concern or no care for what goes on outside in the world. Why? All right. Are we recording this? All right. Can someone come grab this? Fix it? Okay, back on track here. Some Christians I've known, and I've known them for 30, 40 years. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, all they think the Christian life consists of is is going to church, partaking to the Lord's table, and hearing the word, and and, citing liturgy and things like that. Forty years later, it's the same mentality. I think there could have been a temptation here in the first century to do the very same thing. But here, these people, under the Spirit's reign, this church, experienced something so explosive and so expansive, they just 
could not sit there. Amen? And we're going to experience from the rest of this book, this is what we see. They couldn't remain here. They had to go out. They had to do something. They had to tell somebody of this glorious truth, this glorious Savior, this this mighty God incarnate who came and who lived and who died and who rose from the dead, who ascended and who rules and who reigns. And after ascending, descended in the power of the Holy Spirit, causing them to believe, causing them to be born again. They couldn't keep this to themselves. And we're told at the end of chapter 2 that one of the things that has been happening is that God has been attending the ministry of the apostles with, with this enormous blessing. We already witnessed this through, through Peter. And it says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who adds to the church, beloved? God alone. He builds his church. He transforms sinners, adding to his church. And it's interesting that we get to participate in the proclamation of that truth. And it's not our proclamation alone that that, that is going to transform anyone, but the power of the word itself through spirit-indwelt people. As that message goes out, we can rest that it's not up to us to convert anyone, amen. But the spirit of God comes and, and he converts sinners. He converts his elect in due time. This they know. This they grow to know and have confidence in so they didn't become this little holy club. I mean, every day, men, women, and children were putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing Him as God Almighty, confessing Him as Savior, confessing Him as the only way in a pluralistic society where Caesar was referred to as Lord That's to, bring, that's to bring persecution against yourself, amen? Swords start rattling where you deny Caesar as Lord and proclaim Christ as King, amen? And this is what we're going to see take place. So Luke has recorded that they were all filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were done by who, beloved? By the apostles. Signs and wonders by the apostles. And as we come to Acts 3... Here we have an account of one of those wondrous signs, one of those miraculous events. So in Acts 3, we, we begin to see the church you know, kind of moving out. It's on the move. And the validation of this grand message, right? This message goes out. This message is being proclaimed. It's validated by something. Early on in the church, how was the message validated? Signs and wonders. Signs, miracles, and wonders. And in, chap- in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, we read that these were the signs of, of who? Or what? Signs of an apostle. In Acts, we see signs of apostle. In Romans, we read about signs of an apostle. In Hebrews, signs of an apostle. Now, the Lord himself ordained um, that there be some kind of confirmation um, to his witness. I mean, during the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus himself, he not only spoke words, but he did mighty works. Words and works. And, and he said, it's not only a matter of words that I say to you, Jesus would often say, but believe me for the works themselves. 
right? Those miraculous signs that God used to validate him as Messiah in the words that he proclaimed. He, he, he proclaimed to be the Son of God, which is to proclaim equality with God, right? John 5, that's why they wanted to kill him. To declare to be the Son of God, you declare equality with God, therefore you're declaring yourself as deity. That'll get you killed. Even if you are deity, obviously. Amen? See, Nicodemus understood that. Remember when, Jesus, when he came to Jesus by night, he was representing the Sanhedrin. And, and he came to Jesus and he says, We know that you have come from God, not only because of what you say, but because nobody can do the things that you do unless God be with him. So this they understood. So Jesus accredited his ministry by way of certain signs, wonders, and miracles. And then in the early church, he gave that same capacity to the apostles, to those first century prophets, in order that the word that they spoke might also be confirmed, validated, followed up with signs, miracles, and wonders. So the confirmation or, or the measure of any man's ministry today is what? Is it validated by signs, miracles, and wonders? Fire from on high, beloved? <laughs> no. Now that we have the canon, now that we have the word of God, this is all we need to validate a man's ministry. We line up what he says with this. We no longer need signs, miracles, and wonders to validate the message of a man. Right? I've used the illustration before. If three men come through three, these three doors with three different messages, in the first century, the true apostle, the true man of God proclaiming the truth of God, his message was validated with these kind of signs, miracles, and wonders. But today, how do you know which one is real? Speaking the truth. You test him with this, the word of God. You open this up and you test him. So there is no longer a need for signs of an apostle. There are no longer apostles. They're all in heaven. Many men claim today to be apostles. Um, Africa's filled with men who claim to be <laughs> apostles, prophets, and so on. So just as Jesus' ministry was validated with signs, miracles, wonders, so too uh, was the ministry of the apostles as they move out here um, in the early stages or, or the birth of the church. Hebrews 2.12 says, how, will we, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Validated through these kinds of miraculous events. Now, as soon as the church was born, on the very first day here, this confirming ministry, of, in this case, of healing begins. Now, Jesus cured an innumerable amount of people uh, that, that he came in contact with, lepers and cripples and blind people. And, and he did these things in different ways. Um, and not, he didn't always adhere to the same uh, method. To some blind, he healed immediately. One man, he healed from blindness in stages. Remember, he began to see. He had never 
had sight in his life, and he began to see men who were walking who appeared to be what? Like trees. And I began to think, I think, how would he know what a tree looks like other than how it feels? They look, okay, here's this, here's a trunk, and here's some branches, and that's what these people appear to be. And then Jesus gives him certain orders, and, and, and eventually now he sees, and his mind is able to register what's coming into his eye sockets, and his mind is able to register this, which is this miraculous event and of his sight and of his mind, and, and to be able to, to understand what it is he's seeing. So Jesus did these miracles uh, in, in, in many forms. Um, as we come to chapter 3, the, the, the Holy Spirit um, selects for us uh, one of these miracles as an illustration. And the miracle occurs in verses 1 through 11, which we just read. And then from that point, Peter's sermon is birthed in verses 12 to 26. So he comes in, there, this, this normal everyday providential occurrence, meaning he, he, he's going to pray, and here's a beggar. This beggar was here constantly. They probably recognized this beggar, just as we recognize some beggars in our neighborhoods. Amen? There's certain street corners in my neighborhood that you have certain beggars there, there all the time. All the time. I, go to Holly, I was in Hollywood yesterday uh, visiting my son. There's a beggar who carries around Jesus signs and everything, and I, I already am familiar with this cat. He's right there on, on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Vine, and he's either there by the Starbucks or he's across the street in front of a flower shop. Right? That's his place. This man had a place. And a miracle occurs, and then a sermon is produced out of the miracle. Right? Validating the message and the messenger. That's the point. This is what we see. So the miracle gathers a crowd. Amen? The miracle gathers a crowd and confirms the testimony that Peter is about to give. That this is from God. This miracle is from God, and the word that I'm about to speak to you is from God. This is an undeniable reality. And on, on this particular day, uh, we must remember that you know pious Jews uh, went to the temple three times a day to pray. Early in the morning, once in the afternoon, and then at sunset. And here we find Peter and John on their way. This is the time of afternoon prayer. It would be around 3 p.m., and uh, they're, they're going to the temple, most likely not really looking for a ministry opportunity, but doing what all good Jews do. Peter and John here together, ministering together. Um, one who denied Christ three times and wept bitterly. Who ran and hid in shame. He was broken God restored him right alongside of another who was with Christ right there at the foot of the cross. Remember John was there with the women at the foot of the cross. All the other disciples scattered. They all scattered like sheep, as Scripture said they would. But John eventually made his way back to the cross. So two men, brothers in Christ, one who failed miserably, the other who stood at the cross. Brothers. And here, they're still attending uh, temple times of prayer. This is a Jewish custom. 
Um, and they're confronted by divine providence with, with a lame man who actually had to be carried to his begging spot. Imagine that. Carried there every day. Now, he's, they would lay him at what's known as the gate beautiful, or the beautiful gate. And as you read um, Josephus, first century Jewish historian, he records this gate as being 75 feet high. 60 feet wide. Isn't, that's amazing. You think about this. can't encourage you enough to read Josephus um, in, in how he provides vivid illustrations of, of the temple and, and the happenings of the day. So they were em- entering here into the temple precinct, and here's this big, beautiful gate made of uh, Corinthian bronze covered with silver and gold. So imagine, 75 feet high, 60 feet wide, made of Corinthian bronze, covered with silver, covered with gold. It would just, just imagine the sun hitting that thing. And here's this lame beggar sitting there at its entrance. Now, this is Herod's temple, a colossal, beautiful structure. I mean, it took something like 60 to 70 years to build this thing. It was during the time of Jesus' ministry. It was still under construction. Um, It wasn't even completed until um, 65. And then God destroyed it in 70. Just as he said he would. So here at the gate, beautiful, people have passed by this beggar. They pass by him every day. And I think it's interesting where the scripture says that when they approached him, right, they said, look at us. What do most people do when they drive up to the corner and there's a beggar on the median and you're right there and he's right there? What do you do typically? You look away. You do everything but to maintain eye contact, <laughs> typically. I found myself doing that a lot, so um, I stopped doing that and tried to actually maintain eye contact. Or if I'm right there, roll the window down and go, hey, how's it going? Or, you know, whatever. Just because that's what I did and I didn't want to do it. But it's common. I read it here. This is common. So obviously you gain eye contact. And beggars know, beggars know too, you know, who's prone to giving. They know. They're smart. Let me tell you that. Very smart. So they, they both enter and they maintain eye contact. They actually call for eye contact. Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them. What did he naturally expect? Well, verse 5, to receive something from them. He received something all right, amen. But it wasn't gold and it wasn't silver. Look at us, he says. So here's a lame beggar from birth who had to be carried to this spot, the gate beautiful. Here's the surroundings, this colossal Uh, uh, this beautiful, shining, sparkling temple. Josephus also tells us that the top of the temple had like a a design of a grapevine. And he says that they were grapes the size of man, covered with gold. And I think that's what Jesus was pointing to when he was walking with his disciples And he said, I'm the true vine. Because Israel was known as the the vine. He said, I'm the true vine. I'm true Israel. 
True believers are the branches of the vine. Amen? So here's this beautiful temple. The gate beautiful. Peter fixes his gaze on him. He says, look at us. He says, I have no gold, I have no silver, but in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Get up and walk. Now, you can imagine as Luke describes this, he provides some detail. He takes him by the right hand, he raises him up, and the scripture says immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Okay, Luke was a doctor, so he's observing these things. Don't know what that means, don't know exactly what that looks like, because we don't know exactly okay, what kind of a lame man was he. Were his legs withered? You know, where they, you've seen people in wheelchairs, their, their, their legs are very skinny, they have no muscles because they can't exercise those muscles. So, I mean, what did he look like? And immediately he grabs his hand, lifts him up, and his bones have strength, and he orders him to walk. So something extraordinary has happened. This is monumental to, the, to this apostolic ministry birthed out of Pentecost. Peter's already preached. We've already seen a great number of converts. And here now God is going to demonstrate his power. And notice it wasn't Peter who healed this man. Amen? Now we read about, you know, the early church had gifts of healings, plural, gifts of healings. And uh, Peter was simply an instrument of God because it's God who heals Uh, you've met people who think they have the gift of healing today? And they almost boast in that? That's just not wise to do. I mean, we know God heals, amen? God heals anyone he wants, any way he wants. Well, I've seen people healed of cancer and all this type of thing. Um, I had a, a friend of mine in 1995, we prayed for this man, and we laid hands on him and prayed for him. He had a liver disease, and he had like, I don't know if it was six weeks or six months to die before he would die, to live. And uh, we prayed for him, and uh, he came back after seeing the doctor uh, a couple weeks later, and he said, uh, my disease is gone. And he says, I have to say this. He goes, the night that you all prayed for me, and he pointed at me and he said, I could feel heat coming through John Leader's hand. Question, hey, do I have the gift of healing? No, never have. Never had the gift of healing. Um, I didn't heal him. Nobody in that group healed him. God healed him. And the last time I saw him was 2,000-something. He was still walking, still living, like 10 years later. Well, God did this. Now, we were, we were blessed to be able to be there and pray for him. And, and see the fruit of God divinely uh, working in this man's life. But uh, you didn't see me starting a healing ministry. This is the work of God alone. Peter acknowledges this. The apostle acknowledges this fact. Peter addressed the people, verse 12. Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? 
Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Isn't that interesting? You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. This is gospel proclamation. Christ creator. Christ the man who came, who bore sin, having no sin. Right? The consequence of sin is death. It's appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment. Jesus, God incarnate, had he not come to bear sin, if we can even conceive of this, would have lived in that body forever because he's without sin. But he came to bear sin, therefore he was put to death. But the grave can't hold him because he's God. Here he is. He's deity. He's the son of God, God incarnate, the author of life, who came to die, raised up from the grave, and we're witnesses to the fact. He's preaching. This is a preacher preaching. We didn't do this, Peter said. I didn't do this. John didn't do this. Don't look at us. Amen? Don't look at us. This is an act of recreation. Why is there a deformity in the world? Sickness, disease, people having strokes, dying of cancer, car accidents, old age, you name it. Why, beloved? Sin. All because of sin. If there had been no sin in the Garden of Eden, there would be no sickness. And one of the great glories of the final chapter of the Bible is to say that in heaven there will be no more sickness, no disease, no sorrow, and no sin, no temptation, all tears wiped away. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, there'll be no work for doctors to do in heaven. None. But only praise to God, giving Him glory, because creation will be recreated. Everything that's out of joint now, everything that's out of sorts now, will be fully restored then. It'll be all put back together. And this event here in Acts is a sign of that which is to come. That's what this is. A sign, even of something greater than itself. And this is what Jesus has come to ultimately do, to restore all things It's not just, I mean, I hope you understand, it's not just to save our souls. It's to redeem an entire universe cursed by God because of sin. So man's sin has done much more than just damage himself. We being an Adam. The the very cosmos has been affected. And he's going to restore it all. Those dry bones in Ezekiel, beloved, those dry bones will come to life again. That's us. We're the dry bones brought to life in Christ, the regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit. And that's just the beginning. From Acts to this very day. You know, remember in Romans 8 in our study, what Paul says about the creation, what is it doing, beloved? Groaning with what? 
with anticipation. That's right. I hear all those this whispers. Anticipation for the day of its redemption. And here's a sign of it. We watch the news. What do we hear? Man, shootings, murders, robberies, young, young thugs beating up an 85-year-old man or woman. Sin. Remember what Jesus said to John the Baptist? When John the, Bam- the Baptist was languishing, he's locked up in prison, he's going to be executed, he sent his disciples to inquire of Jesus. What did he ask? Go inquire, what? Are you the one? Are you the one? And you know, Jesus did not go running to him, did he? What did he, what did he do, beloved? He sent back word, didn't he? With what? Or of what? The word. The word. You can tell John to take comfort. And then there's that beautiful little phrase from Isaiah 35, which is part of his, his answer to, to John's dilemma at the moment. He, and he said this, The eyes of the blind are opened, the ears of the deaf are unstopped, and the lame leap up like a deer. The lame man leaps up like a deer. And this, this here is just a little glimpse of that. This is what he came to do. This is what he did to, to validate who he was and what it is he would accomplish. And then these apostles carry that work on, validated again by these kinds of signs. So Peter here uses this healing as an opportunity again to present Jesus, to proclaim Christ, to offer forgiveness to the nation that rejected him. Notice he addresses them as men of Israel. Israel. You see, he did this in chapter 2 and verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 22. He, he preached Christ to them and he accused them of denying their own Messiah. The gospel comes to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Amen? The Jews were first in salvation opportunity. And being first in salvation opportunity, they're also first in responsibility. Amen? And they rejected him. Now we know that just a few weeks before this event, Peter denied Christ. He denied him three times. Peter confessed his sin. He was made right by the grace of God. And I heard a great message this, this week in Los Angeles that pointed out the difference between two men, two preachers, two followers of Christ, who were with him every day, who heard him teach, who heard him preach, who witnessed Christ's miracles, who were both given or delegated the responsibility to proclaim truth, both were given the power to heal people. They both were intimate with Jesus. They both denied Jesus. They were both sorrowful that they did this. And one went to hell, and the other went to heaven. And we asked, the question was asked, what was the difference between the two from the human side? What was the difference? One was Judas and one was Peter. 
In the upper room, when Jesus said, one of you will deny me, one of you will, will sell me out, did anyone suspect Judas? No. Who did they suspect? Themselves. Lord, is it I? Right? It was Judas. Judas was sorrowful for what he did. Peter was sorrowful for what he did. Judas was laden with guilt. Peter was laden with guilt. One went and killed himself, and the other wept bitterly. And the question was raised, what's the difference? What's the difference? They both had eye contact with Jesus. When when Judas betrayed Jesus in the garden, he kissed him, betrayed him with a kiss, looking him in the eyes, face to face, six inches apart. Peter, when he denied Christ the third time, Luke tells us that when the cock crowed twice, Jesus did what? He turned and looked at Peter. But they were at a distance. MacArthur asked the question, what was the difference between the two? It was this. One hated Jesus and one loved Jesus. That's the difference from the human side. And he pointed out that sorrow and grief and guilt doesn't always lead to repentance. Right? It's 2 Corinthians 7, right? What produces repentance? Godly sorrow. Peter had godly sorrow. Judas had worldly sorrow. It leads to death. Here's the man preaching the word. Is he any better than Judas? No, he's just graced more. And he's preaching Christ. And he he states that Israel's ignorance has caused them to commit this awful crime. Ignorance is no excuse, amen? Ignorance is no excuse, but it does affect the penalty handed out. We see that in his message. So God was now giving Israel one more opportunity to receive Christ as Messiah, as as a nation. Peter promised in verses 19 to 20 that if the nation would repent and receive the Lord, he would blot out their sins. Amen? And this comes from Isaiah 43, from Isaiah 44, that he would provide times of refreshing. So you see, just like Paul, these guys are most certain regarding the doctrine of divine election and all that. Amen? They don't doubt that. We read their writings. They're confident in the divine electing purposes of God. But nevertheless, they're not hyper-Calvinists, are they? They proclaim the gospel. They proclaim the gospel. So Peter was not describing in this sermon individual, individual salvation as much as the blessing that would come to the nation if they would repent and believe. Remember, he's in the middle of Jerusalem just outside the temple where all religious activity was exercised. That took boldness, amen? It took boldness. It takes the power of the Spirit to have that kind of boldness. So here with this miracle, I think we're given a little glimpse, a little sign, a little picture of how the gospel operates. How Jesus operates in his grace. He commands, but he gives what he commands, amen? Stand up and walk. 
This man had no ability. How could he walk? It's impossible. Jesus commands, repent and believe. And provides the repentance and the belief. Amen? So, salvation of sinners is fully dependent upon God. This is a beautiful picture of that. Man plays no part in his spiritual birth. This man plays no part in getting up and walking. The only thing he could do is grab the hand in response and get up. And he was pulled up and brought to his feet, and his bones were restored in the process. So the most remarkable feature of Peter's second sermon, not unlike the first, is that it's Christ-centered. Get your eyes off the lame man, get your eyes off of us, and look to Christ. Amen? Look to Jesus. So he, 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 he directs their gaze away from the event and away from the messenger. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the one who suffered, the one who was glorified. He's the righteous one. And then, what a picture of the the joy of discovering the power of God in our salvation. Amen? Not only the power to save us, but the power to maintain us. Right? When we fail like Peter. Right? And again, where grace abounds, failure is never, never final for those who are in Christ. Jesus restored Peter three times. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Because he said, Lord, they may forsake you, but I what? I never will. So on that night, Peter, do you really love me more than these? Then feed my lambs, then feed my sheep. Three times do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He restores him. And then this is produced through him. That's abounding grace. So again, believers, fellow brothers and sisters, failure is never final for those who are under the grace and the goodness of God. Can you imagine this guy running around the temple grounds here? This could cause mayhem. I mean, to use the vernacular, people are tripping out here. This is amazing. This is the joy, man. He's leaping for joy. He's leaping. He's jumping. He's running. The guy who laid at the gate, he couldn't even crawl there. They had to bring him there every day to beg. And now he's up running around in response to the power of God. Remember when you were first saved, unless you were saved at a young age, some people can remember the moment they were born again. Some people, I don't really know. I just know I've believed since I was young. Praise God for both. Amen? But some people can remember the moment they were born again. And you remember the joy you had when the, when, when, when the veil was lifted and you saw the light and you had ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to, to understand? I mean, the joy. It caused you to leap, right? You want to tell everybody, guess what? I, I was so crazy. I don't know how many times I, I, I thought I had to tell everybody that I passed by that God saved me. I didn't even know how to share the gospel yet. (laughs) And I actually thought for a time that just my testimony would save people. (laughs) I did. I just said, well, I'll just tell them what happened to me and surely they'll get saved. 
doesn't take long to figure out, though, that the power is not in that. The power is in the message that does that. Amen. Nevertheless, I think leaping for joy is, is a proper response to such an event. You know, salvation, heart of stone removed, replaced with a heart of flesh. That's something to leap for. That's something to rejoice over. And when we fail like Peter, you mean it's not final, that grace lifts me up and sustains me along the way? That's right. That's something to leap for. Something to rejoice over. That God would still use me? Oh, yeah. Because who is it? it's not about you, Peter. It's not about you, John. Because, John, you were at the foot of the cross, and Peter, you weren't. It's not about you. It's about Christ. And that's who he points to. That's who he points to. The preacher should always preach the whole counsel of God and not worry about who gets offended or who gets ruffled because as soon as he tries to to veer away from the truth that's here, he now becomes the center of attention. But not with Peter, not with John. Don't look at us, don't look at him. Let me tell you the power that raised him. It's Christ. He's the center of attention. And then finally we see, you know, we'll we'll go on to see how did the nation respond to the invitation. We'll we'll, we'll go on to see that many of the common people believed and were saved. But the rulers had the apostles arrested. Okay? The Sadducees, as you know, they did not believe in the resurrection. So they naturally rejected Peter's message that Christ had been raised from the dead. You know how the Pharisees thought about Christ, the separated ones. They hated Jesus because Jesus condemned their sin. They hated him. So they're going to hate anyone who represents him. I mean, just read Matthew 23. You've den of wolves, you've brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, right? So the persecution that Jesus promised the apostles back in John 15 is here about to take place. They proclaim the message, people are getting saved. Miracles continue to happen. So they take the miracle and they point not to the miracle, but the provider of the miracle, Christ. And then they're going to be persecuted for it. And then we'll pick up there for next time. And we'll see also how hypocrisy in the church is dealt with in two chapters. (laughs) So Peter and John will stand before the council next time because of this event. Amen? Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the footsteps of these uh, very flawed, weak men that you called to yourself and made mighty apostles. Lord, we see there was nothing in them, in and of themselves, but according to your grace and the power of your Spirit, the message proclaimed went out and saved many and caused much anger and hostility to others. Lord, we see how these men would be persecuted for the message Uh, May we learn something from this, Lord, in our own lives to understand that it's not us, 
It's the gospel proclaimed. And uh, we pray that, that we would grow by this, be nurtured in this, be strengthened in this, and to, be, to have our eyes lifted up um, to you continually for your glory, the blessing of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.